Welcome to the Zonal Marking podcast brought to you by The Athletic. This is a show that tactically and technically discusses a different footballing theme, topic or protagonist each episode. I'm Ali Maxwell and Michael Cox is with me. And this week, Michael and I are delighted to be joined by Raphael Honigstein, the Athletics Bundesliga correspondent and author of various books, most notably for today, Bring the Noise, a biography of Jurgen Klopp. Because today we are talking about the Liverpool manager, Mr Klopp, and how his tactical approach has changed since his period at Dortmund. So, Rafa, before we discuss that evolution from Dortmund to Liverpool, I think it would be nice to get some context into how his managerial career started with Mainz, because it was probably linked to tactics, which is what we like to discuss on the podcast, more than many young managers, in the sense that he was already at Mainz as a player, and they were looking for someone to replace a previous manager, Wolfgang Frank, whose tactics were so specific that they didn't think anyone else could even try to replicate them with this Mainz team. That's absolutely right. I mean, Mainz had two periods of relative success under Wolfgang Frank in the late 90s and early, very early 2000s. And Mainz were a team without money, so they couldn't really get the creme de la creme of coaches. Um, they couldn't really afford very enlightened coaches. They would often get in guys who'd been around, journeyman, whose main idea of coaching was to shout at the players a bit louder than the guy before them, um, with mixed success, if any. And th- there came a point where they really felt, you know, the only way to lift us, and they were fighting against relegation as they almost inevitably were every year, um, was to go back to that blueprint that Wolfgang Frank had at least intermittently. What was different about Frank's philosophy? Well, Frank's big idea um, at the time, a, a real novelty in German football, certainly in the second Bundesliga as well, was to play without a sweeper and to play a back four. And uh, that back four is the prerequisite to play a zonal marking system. And to play zonally, and to then use that time that you have, because you no longer have to chase after players all the time, to then chase after the ball instead. That was the big light bulb moment. At a time when even the German national team was still playing with sweepers, at a time when even the best clubs in the Bundesliga were playing with sweepers. So that was a big idea. And it helped a very poor team in terms of individual skill and players like Klopp, who was really nothing special at all, suddenly realized that thanks to a good idea and to good organization and doing things a little differently you can actually lift yourself above your your real station as far as your your, your quality is concerned and Klopp continued that as a coach saved his team and the very next season they're already fighting for promotion and then ultimately achieving promotion for the very first time so tactics very much at the heart of the Jurgen Klopp origin story and he as a, a disciple of Wolfgang Frank he wasn't the only manager that we'll know nowadays who was someone who looked up to Frank and, and the way that he managed but he was a man who didn't necessarily enjoy uh, complete success wherever he went something of a Bielsa in Wolfgang Frank yeah maybe I mean he was ahead of his time but I think he also had a problem perhaps relating to players on a, on a more human level. I mean, Mainz, they loved him. They left, loved his way because he, he was much more gentle, was much more technical than, than the coaches they were used to. And he really helped players to perform. And it was a, um, a real different approach that he brought. But he was also quite esoteric. He was into um, yoga. He's into mental training. He had players hugging trees. Um, it didn't really uh, go down that well. And then he became 
a little bit too self-doubting and, and he resigned basically one uh, the first time he resigned from one day to the next the second time he uh, left for a bigger club or maybe it got it mixed up but it doesn't really matter he was a bit highly strong and didn't have perhaps the coolness and the calmness to to see through his his ideas and his ideas were only really vindicated and he only really became a winner and, a, and, a, and an influential figure through the work of his acolytes and his apprentices and Klopp of course being the first and foremost among them. Klopp has seemingly never had much issue getting through to his players on a human level a motivational level. Michael let's get into the the meaty part of this in order to track how different this Liverpool team under Klopp looks to the Dortmund under Klopp. Let's remind ourselves about that side. You wrote about them in your series for The Athletic, iconic teams of the decade. What were the tactical aspects of their play that made them iconic? Well, I suppose the main thing is the the use of gig impressing, which everyone has spoken about a lot since he's joined Liverpool in particular in this country. But I must say the first time I saw Dortmund, really what I thought about them was was their transitions from kind of defensive positions and how good they were on the counter-attack. And I guess because gegenpressing was almost a new approach, I guess, to a lot of us in England, certainly a word that, you know, we didn't have an equivalent for in England and we ended up using the German word. I wasn't really focused on that, wasn't really looking for that, but it was just how quickly they they won the ball and, and got the ball forward at transitions. The wide players in particular were so good at springing forward from deep positions. So at the time I thought of them almost as a purely counter-attacking side. And it was only really once I kind of, I guess, read a lot of the coverage of German football where it was actually, this is a slightly different philosophy and there are, uh, you know, nuances to the system that maybe you wouldn't have considered from just watching their, their games once or twice. And it was brilliant to watch their games wasn't it certainly from an English perspective but even from a German football perspective what that Dortmund side was doing was considered to be new and exciting and different Uh, Subotic uh, who you speak to in your book on Klopp mentioned that playing that way was so fun as well very difficult physically but there's a line where he says better than winning itself almost that's how fun it was playing in that team Rafa We're going to touch on some of the differences between Dortmund and Liverpool, but let's start with the similarities between them. You've watched both teams more than most. If you were a Klopp at Dortmund disciple that had missed the last few seasons of Liverpool and tuned into a Liverpool match now, what would you see that would make you recognise this as a Klopp team? I think it would really depend on the opposition. If you watch Klopp against Klopp's Liverpool against Manchester City you would, I think, see a lot of the principles and maybe even processes that you were familiar with with Dortmund. A little bit reactive, waiting for the opposition to to make a mistake. Yes, pressing uh, high up the pitch in spells, but not continually. No, No team can really do that, not even the best Dortmund team. But then luring teams into traps in certain areas and then using the momentum of the team against them. Um, and, you know, there's this famous line from Klopp about Gegenpressing being the best playmaker. That was very much Dortmund's uh, approach and it was very much the approach uh, from Liverpool in some of the games against teams who want the ball. But most of the games they play these days, teams give them the ball and then wait for Liverpool to do something. So they had to evolve that side of the game. And that's where the big improvement has come. With the ball, creating spaces against deep defending sides, 
um, having the width through the fullbacks, having the interchange of the three players with one or two of them sometimes going into central positions, creating space on the flanks, all this kind of stuff. The Dortmund team wasn't nearly as refined. You could say they didn't have the players or you could say maybe Klopp's philosophy, Klopp's tactics hadn't evolved to that point. And, you know, his big downfall, as it were, or, or, or the, the years when Dortmund started to lose momentum was when teams just basically did what Liverpool... Um, opponents do now which is to say you know you want to press us you want to um, counterattack us no here's the ball do something with it and that Dortmund team just wasn't really built for that this Liverpool team is so a key part of Klopp's development is the evolution of a style with the ball those games that we recognize big teams having all the time these days where you may have 60 65 sometimes 70 percent possession potentially didn't necessarily have that uh, to such a degree at Dortmund uh, Michael we've mentioned Gagan pressing that was inevitable uh, it's a theme throughout Jürgen's career so far it was described in in Rafa's book which I loved as a social contract uh, and also as Rafa mentioned as the best playmaker in the world Gagan pressing to what extent do Liverpool Gagan press they do but I think probably less so than they did in the early days I remember some of the big victories at the start of Klopp's time at Dortmund particularly it was a 4-1 at Manchester City where they were excellent and I think three or four of the goals came from really winning the ball high up quick combination play going in behind I think they're less dependent on that now and as Rafa says I think the sophistication of their build up play is, is something really Dortmund ever didn't really come close to um, but yeah as Rafa says again in, in big games it's certainly a factor you, you kind of I think sometimes Liverpool can be at their best when there's teams who kind of want to play through them and against Manchester City in particular who you know for the last three years have generally been slightly above Liverpool in terms of their level but Liverpool have almost outperformed themselves in those games particularly that two-legged Champions League game a couple of years ago when teams want to play Liverpool are just very quick at snapping into that press both with the game pressing and just pressing in general winning the ball high up you know when the opposition play out from goal kicks. Rafa, he's had to adapt his style to the squad at his disposal as well. The Dortmund side was really uh, personified by its youth. So many young players uh, towards the start of their careers who had never played at the top level before and were on that journey together. There's an aspect of that with this Liverpool side. There's a lot of hunger uh, to, to reach the sort of success that they've had. But these, for the most part, are more established players coming in generally with high transfer fees and he has adapted very easily to having better players to work with. Yes, as you'd expect him to do really. I mean, there was one um, suggestion uh, it, uh, towards the tail end of his Dortmund time that perhaps the players had become a little bit too old, had become used to um, all the rhetoric and just either couldn't or didn't want to run as much anymore. But I think, again, the difference is now... You know, in those days with Dortmund, they didn't have a lot of quality on on the on the wings. They had wide players who were quick, but they were quite functional. The fullbacks, as well as the wide players, the likes of um, Blasikowski, for example, are not really a, a very tricky a tricky winger. Um, so the so the the momentum and and the the space and the penetration that they created often came from having a lot of people around the ball. 
and that is very intensive it's a great way of playing but it means you're just constantly running you're constantly trying to create overloads in certain areas and then combine one or two the, the, the high point of that sort of approach was probably the 5-2 destruction against uh, of Bayern in the cup watched by Fergie uh, in Berlin uh, in the stands um, but now you have players who can go 1v1 and the idea is almost to say you know what give the ball quicker into players who are a little bit isolated as far as the rest of the team is concerned because they can use that space they can take on players one we one and by the time they do that then we push up from midfield so uh, in a strange way sometimes it's Liverpool are probably a little bit more direct uh, when it comes from you know looking for those big diag- diagonal balls because that creates immediate danger whereas giving a big diagonal ball to to a Kagawa or to a Blaszczykowski or to you know one of the fullbacks pushing up a Schmelzer or a Piszczek wouldn't have had the same impact. Guardiola's talked about how dribbling and dribbling ability, the ability to take on a man and beat him, is one of his favourite qualities of a player, one of the most important qualities. And it sounds like that's sort of what we're seeing here: Liverpool with better players who can beat a man, and therefore maybe a bit more than your Blaszczykowskis and your Grosskreutzes. Um, uh, he's, he's found a way to, well, where with Dortmund he was able to get the max out of those players, there's a difference with these Liverpool players that we're seeing it in the way that they play. And Michael, in terms of formation, it's not the same formation, is it? There's a change from 4-2-3-1, which we saw the majority of his games with Dortmund to a, a 4-3-3 now with Liverpool. I'd like to discuss some of the roles within that, starting with the wingers that we've spoken about. In your piece about Dortmund, you were pretty big on the role of Blaszczykowski and of, of Grosskreutz as well and, and what they embodied really in that Dortmund side. Yeah, I mean, to go back to what Rafa said about, you know, the the stars of the Dortmund side, the, the ones I was impressed by in the early years were Sahin, who was in centre midfield, Kagawa, who was the number 10, and later Lewandowski, who was the centre forward. And it felt like the wide players almost played supporting roles. Whereas this, with Liverpool, I think it's the complete other way around. Salah and Mane were the two top goal scorers last year. The fullbacks were the assisters. And the midfield three is, you would say, relatively functional. Maybe it's changed a little bit. Fabinho, I think, has been outstanding, particularly the last few months. But even he's a defensive midfielder who's there to support others so yeah there's a slight change of system there's no number 10 with Liverpool but you know I think that's really just him being pragmatic I, I, I think it's just him working with the players he's got I dare say had he come and there was a, a proper centre forward who was a world class player then he would have accommodated him maybe played Firmino a little bit deeper but yeah you've got Firmino who I guess is is providing the number 10 qualities and has gradually evolved to be a number 9 as well and score an increasing number of you know classic centre forward goals the fact that Firmino potentially is somewhat of a 10 while playing nominally in the number number nine position has allowed Klopp to, to strengthen that midfield. In terms of the three central midfielders, Rafa, were you surprised at how Liverpool's central midfield developed under Klopp? Not necessarily a, a pure creator in there, but as Michael said, quite a functional midfield. Was that similar at Dortmund? Well, Dortmund had a lot of players in midfield who would um, see it as their main role to be almost sort of shutless. I mean, Sven Bender is probably the best example. He spent a lot of time in the bigger games helping out each, helping out either fullback to shut down the flanks so he could just go run in horizontal lines the most most time. Now with three midfielders there, um, there is that natural 
uh, with Ferretti, you'll always have one midfielder positioned close to your centre-back. So it's, it's a little bit easier to do that, less work intensive. It also allows you to have three guys up front. You can basically leave them there, although the wide players often come back in, against the better opposition. But I think it's it's not, not necessarily by design. I think it was an evolution that happened after Coutinho's departure. Because Coutinho was always the guy that they somehow had to get into the team. He never really had a proper position. He very rarely played as a real number 10 in a 4-2-3-1 he would often uh, be more on the left uh, in a 4-3-3 um, and you know he'd give you a lot but he'd also make it harder to play the kind of pressing and upon collective game that um, that I think instinctively is is closer to the ideal uh, of Klopp and, and, and the coaching staff behind uh, below him but because Coutinho left and they put money on the left suddenly you have this great balance. I mean, you lose a bit of creativity, you lose a bit of guile, a bit of technique. Um, you have to find someone who maybe will play that final ball, which doesn't really come natural to any of the mis- midfielders. But what you gain is so much balance and so, so much so much balance and composure, which helps you then um, maybe make up for that little bit of loss by just being much more solid all around. I mean, if you think back of the the early two, two and a half years of Klopp, I mean, they would play some good stuff, but they would always concede goals. There would always be a lot of games where they weren't fully in control. And that sort of aspect of control and of, uh, you know, being able to manage games and to just be much more regular in, in your wins and, and uh, just you know having this ability to grind up results that really comes from having that third midfielder which i think is um is a very unusual system if you look around the top european teams most of them don't want to have three central midfielders they want to put in at least one more attacking player but for liverpool it works because of the quality of the fullbacks which we've talked about but also because the three guys up front can almost be trusted to do things by themselves if you know that you'll you'll be protected enough and you don't really have to worry so much what happens up front because you will not concede or you'll at least not concede many goals you basically say you know you guys you three guys with the fullbacks you'll you'll take care of it and that's that's been the system and it's worked very well yeah, Michael, could you expand on Liverpool's fullbacks? I mean, we're comparing Liverpool to Klopp's Dortmund, but really their role is incomparable to almost any team we've ever seen. Yeah, I think particularly with Alexander Arnold, who's basically just a playmaker at right back, uh, which isn't to say that Robertson isn't a very, very useful player. His overlapping and his crossing is excellent, but I think of him as, you know, a fairly standard modern fullback. You know, who goes down the line and crosses, whereas Alexander Arnold, his ability to come inside, his ability to use his left foot, uh, his combination play with Salah, of course, is really important. And I think actually they've got better down that flank since Henderson moved there as well, um, who obviously was playing at the base of midfield before Fabinho established himself. And Henderson, I think, having played that role, is less inclined to just be running around and showcasing his energy and doing a bit of everything. And he's happy just to draw wide to allow Alexander Arnold forward. So like they're good down down both flanks but I think particularly down that right and you know for all the criticism of Liverpool in the early days that they couldn't break down deep opponents and of course they've actually got better at that since Coutinho left as Rafa says that was at the time considered you know a bit of an issue in terms of playing that final ball but I think Alexander-Arnold plays so many of those passes uh, almost De Bruyne-esque passes that you're not sure whether it's a cross or a through ball but are just so effective at getting the ball into a danger zone from a you know seemingly unthreatening position 
if a Klopp central striker sequence is Barrios, Lewandowski, Firmino. Talk me through the various roles, the various strengths or otherwise uh, of those three players. I guess not too many similarities, although the one thing I'd say, and Raf has written a piece about him recently, um, but Lewandowski... About Barrios? No, but <laughs> sadly not about Lewandowski. But, you know, I remember that run to the Champions League final and Lewandowski's movement into deeper positions and his ability to create, I think, was quite underrated. He was seen as kind of a pure nine, whereas I think it's a lot more to his game than that. For me, you know, I guess the reverse. He's an attacking midfielder who's gradually developed into a central striker. Um, but yeah, probably not too much comparison to, to Barrios in that uh, in that sequence. And Rafa, finishing off our look at these two teams with the defenders and the goalkeeper, I mean, the Subotic-Hummels central defensive partnership is an iconic part of that Dortmund team. The, the the paucity of senior football that the two players had played when Klopp threw them in together and the trust that he put in them, which they repaid, of course, with excellent performances. Uh, and and Weidenfeller was, well, he, he was a bit of an unusual player in, in that team as well. He wasn't a young player. Uh, what sort of a, a role did he have, uh, potentially looking at Alisson now, who is just simply sensational? Well, he doesn't come off very well in the comparison, but that's not necessarily a slight on him. Simply, we're simply saying that Alisson is, you know, is one of the best keepers and at the very cutting edge of, of goalkeeping in, in terms of his distribution. It's yet another factor for Liverpool why they've gone to a different level. The ability to pick out a midfielder or even sometimes one of the front uh, players uh, from the goalkeeping uh, position is just something that is so useful, especially against teams who then want to press you a little bit. So to bypass that press with a pinpoint pass from the back is is just hugely useful and I think it's something that uh, Klopp would have seen from Guardiola's side who always uh, made sure that they have really strong players at the back who can play either under pressing or if they have to go long play long with precision uh, that's something that Boateng did that's something that Hummels did um, uh, at Dortmund um, to a certain extent but certainly not quite at the same level as um, as a Van Dijk can do I mean he's another one we should mention uh, not just because of his defense, defensive uh, capabilities but if you look at his pass for example that led to the uh, money goal away to Munich I mean it's just an unbelievable ball and if this was a midfielder, we'd probably be going on about it a lot, lot more. But because it looks sort of as, as a, almost like a clearance or a long punt, I think people don't realise just how unbelievably brilliant that ball is. Um, so all these factors combine. What Hummels and Subotic had at Dortmund, I think, was, was, was pace. Um, they were quite quick then. They had good aerial ability, which was very important because in the helplessness, most teams resorted to just going long and then the, the two centre-backs had a lot of time to just position themselves and had it clear. Uh, but they also had a team in front of them which really protected them. And I, I think the same is true now. Van Dijk has this amazing ability to win 1v1s. But if you have too many 1v1s, even the best centre-backs in the world will lose one or two of them. So the real trick is to protect your your back four. And you know now you have that front three working hard, then another back, <laughs> a row of three working even harder. It's probably relatively easy to play centre-back in, in a system and in a team that collectively works so hard to, to protect his, his own goal, its own goal. Often when... We talk about teams that press very high. The pros of that system, I think we all understand. Winning the ball high up the pitch with a team 
having to turn, whose defensive shape is not set. Those are all very clear. The flip side of it is, and the data very much backs this up, teams that press exceptionally high up the pitch, when they do get bypassed and when the opposition do create chances, they tend to be fairly high quality chances because they themselves haven't got necessarily that set defence. Uh, was that a feature of that Dortmund team? You know, we talked about all the um, the brilliance that their Gagan pressing uh, created for them but over the course of a few years that there were spells where they weren't dominating every single game and they didn't always have success certainly towards the end was that noticeable that at times they were very vulnerable because they had pressed so high well Klopp would disagree with the analysis uh, he would say you know the win the, the season when we won it I think for the second time we had the best defence in the league I think they only conceded 20 goals his answer to, to that um, accusation if you were or to that line of, of thinking was always if you press properly you will not give away those chances the moment it doesn't quite work out the moment either the pressing sort of signal doesn't trigger and there's not enough people around to win the ball or the people behind it are not in the right position to defend the right zones, then you're in real trouble. But his, his answer to that has always been, we need to do it better. He's always resisted um, the the idea that teams had sort of found out how to play against him and were now playing on the break. He said, well, they've known about this for, for six, seven years. When we're on it, there's nothing they can do about it. And I guess when you look at this Liverpool team now who have added possession to their armory, you probably see why, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't think about questioning, you know, is this too much pressing or, you know, why are they, why are they doing that? Uh, it just works. And that's why we're not really having that debate. And he would always say, you know what, forget about plan B and all this stuff. We just have to be on it and have to make sure that this works out, then no one can stop us. The style of play at Dortmund did inevitably lead to imitation from other Bundesliga sides. Michael, they had different levels of success, of course. The implementation of it, as we're hearing, is the key. That social contract line comes back again. As long as everyone's buying into this, it can be successful, but even a 1% slippage can, uh, can cause problems. In terms of imitation that was potentially one of the issues for Klopp's Dortmund towards the end of his reign there have we seen anything similar in English football yet clubs or managers attempting to imitate Klopp's Liverpool not to a certain extent although I think the kind of there was almost a sudden craze of pressing before Klopp had come in to the Premier League not just you know the the way that Liverpool press in terms of winning the ball back quickly but winning the ball higher up so the Dortmund side was so successful, a little bit like with Guardiola, actually. I think teams almost started to try and play that way in England before they'd even arrived in, in English football. And I think maybe you can say, again, a different style of pressing, but I, I think you can say that Pochettino at Southampton then Tottenham maybe was the, the one who people really started saying, oh, hang on, this is something slightly different. Let's try and play that way. So I don't think, with the exception maybe of a couple of the, the German managers who have come in since, um, I wouldn't say there's any who you would say are, are literally a, a Liverpool kind of clone, no. Inevitably, during this discussion, Rafa, the name Pep Guardiola has arisen because Jurgen Klopp's main rival, both with Bayern Munich when Klopp was with Dortmund and now with Manchester City with Klopp at Liverpool, 
How is their rivalry? And I know that they are sometimes quite eager to avoid that sort of rhetoric, that sort of phrase, but let's call it a rivalry, a sporting rivalry. How has their rivalry evolved over the years from the Bundesliga to the Premier League? Well, I don't think either of them really saw it as a rivalry until fairly recently. When Klopp was at uh, Dortmund and Pep came in in 13-14, Bayern were at the very high point of their development and Klopp's Dortmund were in a clear trajectory downwards. Not all of it because of his own making, but also because they lost key players. Lewandowski went, Götze went, Schein went, Kagawa went. And it was a constant struggle to replace these guys. Um, with the core players who were not getting younger and with the core players who'd also, and this is a big thing for Dortmund, who'd also won the World Cup uh, without necessarily playing a lot in some cases. But I think the combination of all these things just made sort of this struggle to keep this, this going as the underdog. Eventually sort of gravity kicked in and it was just too difficult to to keep up so they were never really rivals in the Bundesliga because Bayern under Guardiola were on a completely different level and the closest I think Klopp came was 25 points uh, in the league which you know shows you uh, where they were yes there was you know the odd cup game when things were quite close but nowhere near um, the situation we have now where you feel as if the momentum could be changing where you feel it's not just a rivalry, but actually this this year, at least domestically, Liverpool are exerting themselves and are leaving City behind. Um, but it never, I think, despite one or two you know statements about money diving from from Guardiola and then Klopp coming back with tactical fouls, it never ever approached any sort of pers- personal level or personal animosity or or rivalry as we'd like to think, where you know one guy thinks about beating the other man I think there's something in both these guys where they feel that if they have their team playing not perfect but sort of the the ideal football then it almost doesn't matter what they play and I don't think they think of each other um, in terms of beating the other side necessarily I think they're thinking what can I do to get the most out of my team and play the best football and the fact that it's City or Liverpool is almost I think incidental to their thinking it doesn't seem to be that that sort of bigger arc of, you know, I need to destroy this guy, you know, like Mourinho had when, when he was there with Real Madrid or um, these are my enemies or this is a team that I, a club I really hate. None of these things are there. It, it made it last year quite boring in a sense because we didn't have all these um, extracurricular overtones, if you will, that we used to in the past from title races. And I think this year is the same. This is just about one team playing extremely well the other team playing almost as well but just that little bit of difference is enough for the other team to be 10 or 11 points clear do you think that lack of a personal rivalry was kind of aided by the fact they first encountered one another in Germany rather than England because I remember the first time I went to a press conference after a Bundesliga game I was amazed the two one of them was Klopp it was a game against Wolfsburg I can't remember who the Wolfsburg manager was but the two managers came in sat side by side and rather than just having questions fired at them they got two or three minutes just to kind of explain themselves there was one kind of half-hearted question from the from the journalists and then they kind of hugged each other and went off and I just thought that's the kind of relationship we just wouldn't have here yeah, maybe it's that. Um, that is that is the way that uh, it's always being done in Germany. But Klopp, I think, doesn't really want to engage all of this stuff. I think he sees it as a distraction. I don't think he sees it as anything can be gained. I mean, there were instances where he certainly 
became sort of the political spokesperson for Dortmund in a, in, in a certain sense and tried to get neutrals on side. You remember that there was this big interview he did with English journalists where he spoke of Dortmund as being Robin Hood and Bayern had the bazooka and he, he painted this lovely picture of the underdog uh, before the final against Wembley. And I think a lot of people bought into that and, and supported Dortmund because of that. But it never got to the point where he attacked Jupinkus, who was then the manager, or, or Guardiola. Um, and I don't think it's something that he feels is is necessary to have success. And Guardiola, I think, is, is socially awkward to begin with and doesn't really want to get drawn on, <laughs> on any of that stuff. Um, that's not for him. So whether by design or by default, we've ended up with two managers who just don't seem to be very interested in in the uh, the politics of fighting against each other. Michael, just in terms of when those two teams have met on the pitch, though, I mean, it is still a fascinating tactical encounter. And over the last two years or so, we've seen it play out in, in various different ways. You know, they are thinking about each other's tactics all the time, if not trying to besmirch each other's characters. Yeah, I think the tactical battle has evolved as well. I think in the early meetings between... Uh, Klopp and Guardiola in the Premier League Liverpool went out of the traps really quickly tried to play a really high tempo and kind of tailed off towards the end of the halves and were often hanging on we haven't really seen that in the last couple of meetings I think Liverpool are just at a stage where not only are they tactically able to cause City problems they're probably just a better side now as we can see from the league table and I think have have been a little bit more patient a little bit more intelligent the way they've gone after City so yeah I mean the meetings between those two sides have been really fantastic and it's been a while since we've had a really great rivalry I think at the, at the top of the Premier League in terms of two great teams so we'll have to wait and see whether we have a title fight this year but last year was was really special I think the only sad thing really was the meeting between the two of them or the second meeting between the two of them came so early in early January so it didn't really feel like a, a title decider although when you look at the, the league table it effectively was and lastly Rafa at what point in following Jurgen Klopp's managerial career Mainz Dortmund Liverpool did you think this is a man who will be at the very forefront of our game I think it was clear uh, in the Dortmund years that this guy had had something very special I think he was still being underrated I think outside outside Germany where they saw him as as this guy who'd you know taken Dortmund to two titles and to the final but you know what what does he know about the Premier League what does he know about European football not that much he's a big risk I remember one uh, journalist writing and I think he's shown that he has got enough intelligence and ability to adapt his his ideas his way of coaching without necessarily losing yourself I think that is always the biggest point for any manager you want to evolve you want to adapt to your team, you want to adapt to a different league, but you don't want to lose your own principles. And if you contrast that, for example, with someone like Emery, who I think had some really good ideas and had a, probably a clear vision before he came in, but then found himself adjusting to the point where that vision got completely lost and there was no real structure and, and direction anymore. I think it takes... Uh, it really takes sort of strength of character and and also high uh, intelligence and charisma and all these things, authority, to to see this through. You could see that the writing was very much on the wall with Dortmund, and I'm, as his biographer, of course, I'm very pleased that the uh, success story is playing itself out once more, as it seems at Liverpool. Well, I like to think that in a relatively short space of time, with my 
expert guests, Michael Cox and Rafa Honigstein. We have answered the question, what is the key evolution between Klopp's Dortmund, which captured the imagination of German football and beyond, and his Liverpool side, which is doing so now in the Premier League and across the world. This has been the Zonal Marking Podcast brought to you by The Athletic. We are just one of a number of athletic podcasts, many of them club-specific, but also the Ornstein and Chapman show. They're all available for free on every podcast platform you could think of. And if you enjoyed this podcast, if you'd like to know where you could read Rafa Honigstein, where you could read Michael Cox, The Athletic is the place to be. You can subscribe to the site today. 40% off with the offer code UKPOD. That is all caps, all one word, UKPOD. Subscribe to The Athletic today. Thank you for listening to this podcast and we'll be back again next week.